the things that we claim to be basic services, such as free antenatal care for pregnant women and children under five are not free. They still pay for such services. In Nigeria, there's a policy that uh, basic education is supposed to be free, but it is not free. They still have to pay for these services. Hello, and welcome to the Evidence for Development podcast, where we explore methods and evidence developed and used in the Global South to shape policy and improve lives. I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray, and I'm your host. If you're interested in research, knowledge exchange, and learning related to international development, then this podcast is for you. I'm pleased to be joined for this episode by Anupana Ranawana, Christian Aid's thematic research specialist. Today, we're talking to Talatu Aliu, Monitoring, Evaluation, Accountability and Learning Manager with Christian Aid Nigeria, and Kathy Bollard, who leads the Research Evidence and Learning Team at Christian Aid. Welcome. To get us started, Kathy, can you tell us about the Evidence and Collaboration for Inclusive Development Project? What did it aim to do and where did it take place? The Evidence for Collaboration and Inclusive Development was a multi-country project um, and it was funded by DFID, which later became the FCDO. And it was a project that took, that uh, was first centralized pretty much in London, and it was built around a consortium of nine different development partners. And then the project actually took place within three different uh, countries, including Myanmar, Zimbabwe, and Nigeria. Within Nigeria, the Evidence and Collaboration for Inclusive Development Project aimed to reduce poverty, improve access to services, and realize the rights for the most marginalized groups in two states, Anambra State, which is in the southeast of the country, and in Kaduna State in the northwest part of Nigeria. Talatu, who did you identify as the most marginalized communities within those two states? So for us in Nigeria, we... We identified three groups as the most marginalized. Uh, we identified boys and girls, that's adolescent boys and girls, ages 13 and 19. We also identified poor rural women from the age of 19 and above who are living in hard-to-reach communities. Then we also identified people living with disabilities. So the project uh, seeks to improve the access to services for this targeted group of people. And uh, for us in Nigeria, we understand that um, there is that limited engagement with the government, especially with people living with disabilities, adolescent boys and girls, and uh, poor rural women. Their voices seem to be silenced and um, the ESIT project seeks to ensure that there is this uh, meaningful engagement, participation in both formal and informal decision-making structures and to better improve their well-being, so to speak, because uh, we did identify that these people are living in extreme poverty. That's really interesting, Talati. Thank you. I was going to ask whether or not you could tell us a little bit more about 
you know, the lives of rural women and, and people living with disability and, and adolescents in Nigeria. You've touched upon some of those issues already, but could you kind of uh, provide us just a little bit more context on the situation that, that they might be, you know, living in? You see, um, the situation in Nigeria, you know, um, Nigeria has the highest population in Africa. We are over 200 million and um, over 25% of this population are adolescent boys and girls. They have little or no representation in issues that affect them and their lives. Their voice seems to be silenced. Um, talking about uh, people living with disability in Nigeria, it's quite a source of concern because they are usually excluded in um, engagements that affect their lives and livelihood. They have little or no representation in both formal and informal decision-making structures. Then talking about uh, women that live in uh, rural areas, we're not just talking about poor women, but poor rural areas. These have their voice um, silenced because they are not also included in um, the affairs that affect them. So you see, the ECIT project was just timely to see that we have this set of people being involved in the governance process. And um, for us in Christian Aid Nigeria, our programming highlights this set of people. We also have them in our programming to ensure that no one is left behind. We consciously try to ensure that these people are part and parcel of all that we do. Thanks, Talatu. The Evidence and Collaboration for Inclusive Development Project focused on four areas of concern for these marginalized groups. You looked at access to basic health services, access to education, infrastructure, such as roads and transportation, and agricultural inputs, such as fertilizers. What were your top-line findings from the evidence you collected? Um, so, the top findings, when it comes to basic health services from the two states, this is totally absent. What is usually termed as basic services for the poor rural people, for the marginalized um, poor rural people, for the adolescent boys and girls, for the people living with disabilities, what we found out from the research is that the things that we claim to be basic services, such as um, free um, uh, antenatal care for pregnant women and children under five are not free, as it has been said. They still pay for such services. Then the basic education in Nigeria, there's a policy that uh, basic education from primary to junior secondary school is supposed to be free, but it is not free. They still f have to pay for this basic um, primary and secondary education. And um, agricultural inputs, people are supposed to be given basic inputs as free, such as fertilizer, but the findings from both states people still pay for all of these basic amenities. Then um, talking about infrastructure, infrastructure means for us here is um, talking about um, transportation and easy access to places of, for instance, healthcare services, schools. is still very, very far for the people living um, in the rural areas. And uh, for people living with disabilities, um, such things are very, very difficult for them to come by. 
like in terms of um, education, most of the schools do not have the infrastructure, the materials to cater for people living with disabilities. Um, the buildings are not disability friendly. Then um, when it comes to access of um, medicines in healthcare, uh, most of our health facilities are, do not have qualified um, health personnel. And uh, where we have them, we do not have drugs to cater for the immediate needs of uh, such people. And um, it's a dicey situation. So people do not even, the government do not even know what they need and even provide for them. So those are some of the top uh, headlines of the findings that we, 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 we got from the research. That's um, concerning. I mean, obviously those, those, those are, you know, that's concerning evidence to have gathered. Um, what were you surprised by, by those findings or did those tally with what you expected to find? Well, I wouldn't say I was surprised because for us in Nigeria, the government do not have up-to-date data of this excluded group of people. Well, that was going to be my next question for you. Um, what did you find out about what data the government holds about these marginalized groups? Well, I wouldn't say that the government are totally naive about this, but the problem is, do we even have data to say this is the number of people that are need um, such um, support to help us make an informed decision on how much we are going to put in in a particular area. So talking about data, data is totally missing. And where we have such data, of all these three groups that I mentioned, the one that is a bit organized is for is the people living with disability. We have data of people living with disability. But even with that, the data is not updated, you know. And um, so um, for children, the adolescent boys and girls, we only have the data through school enrollment. And this school enrollment, we have to rely on with the Ministry of Education. And even at that, it only captures the data of pupils that are in school. What about those out of school? It is totally missing. So you see, to plan for such group of people will be very, very difficult. Number one, we, the government do not have up-to-date data to ascertain the actual figure of this particular excluded group. So whatever thing they are planning will not be accurate and might not be relevant because we need to know the numbers and we need to know the disaggregation from the numbers. How many are males? How many are females? How many are disabled? And even with the status, you know, how many are elderly and stuff like that. The fact that we do not have up-to-date data, it becomes very difficult for the government to even plan for such groups of people. So what the project tried to seek to do is to ensure that... Um, there is this enabling environment where we can bring these people to the forefront, to dialogue, to engage. You know, remember I said this uh, group of people's voices are silenced. You know, they do not, even from the findings, uh, most of them say do not, they do not have that direct engagement with the government. Talk more of them presenting their issues as it were for them to be able to cater for their need. So you've gathered all this evidence. How are you going to use that evidence related to groups not receiving basic services? 
How is that evidence going to be used to change what you do in Nigeria? So before now, we were able, with the findings, we were able to reactivate the state data consultative um, committee. It was there before the coming of uh, the project, is it? But it was not functional. So we were able to revive the um, data consultation committee. So they work with the State Bureau of Statistics, Ministry of Education, and Ministry of Budget and Planning. So a kind of a committee that will ensure that um, most of the findings that we got from the research, and by the way, it was a collaborative kind of research we ensure that uh, we work with the relevant agencies so that they can take ownership. So that is the Ministry of Budget and Planning and Bureau for Statistics, since we are dealing with data. So we're able to reactivate um, that committee to bring it to life. Then also we were able to um, set up advocacy groups in the two states. Building up from the Voice to the People project, which I talked about earlier, we have some uh, community representatives, we have relevant um, target groups, we have the media, we have um, the government officials. So um, the findings from the research was able to bring about advocacy groups that will, will be driving the advocacy engagement relevant to the target groups. So they are to take up some of these um, findings that we brought out from the research to engage with the relevant stakeholders. We are also trying to use the findings to seek for new funding opportunities that will roll up new interventions to address some of the data gaps that we identified in the project. So the method you used was also quite different. Your multi-country research team tried to decentralize power through the research process. So can you talk about how you did that? How did you try to shift power in research and build more equal research partnerships? One of the challenges we faced was that um, the budget was very much uh, centralized in London. So the first thing we had to do was to try and negotiate a decentralization of the budget to the three countries, Myanmar, Nigeria, and Zimbabwe. But in order to be successful in that negotiation, uh, it was quite important to establish research partnerships in the country. And we felt that that was also quite a novel approach of creating what we called hybrid research teams. So this included the development practitioners and organizations like Christian Aid and who are part of the research team, because we really felt that uh, people working in development have a much better understanding of the context and the reality and how research can really be applied and used in that particular context. But then we built partnerships also with academics and research organizations in the three countries. So we had basically three research teams in the three countries made up of an academic or a couple of academics and practitioners. So that was the next step, was to develop that that partnership, because again, from the academic side, they really brought more of a research and academic understanding. They were able to help guide and shape the actual uh, methodologies that were used for the research and work together collaboratively with the, with the practitioner organizations. But if we want to shift power and research, another important aspect of that is being able to 
co-design research. And when you're working globally and you're not face-to-face with each other, that's even more challenging because everything has to happen online. So the way we did that was through ChristianAid have developed a course called Evidence for Development Practitioners. The Evidence for Development course that Kathy is referring to is an online course developed by the Research Evidence and Learning Team, which Anu and I are both part of, in collaboration with The Open University. Yeah, it's a great course and relevant to anyone interested in improving the quality of evidence generated by development practitioners and other staff working within an international development context. Anyway, that's enough of a plug. It's a great course and we'll make sure there's a link on the podcast notes so you can find out more about it if you'd like. (laughs) Talatu, what are your personal reflections on being part of the evidence and collaboration for inclusive development project? Um, It was very interesting because, you know, just like you rightly said, we had those at the practitioners and those at the academia. And, you know, for us in the development uh, work, um, we do not do research as much as it is done in the academia. And um, I was particularly delighted that um, the ESIT project consciously brought in a research component. So for me as a person, it was a learning process. Learning process in the sense that um, we, we are very much engaged with the academia. Like for us in Nigeria, we had this partnership with the University of Nigeria, Unsuka, working directly with the Institute for Development and Studies. So you see, bringing out the academic perspective of research, you know, doing research uh, more ethically really brought out those things that we really want to see in the development work, especially having this um, research ethic committee. You know, it was part of the things that we set up in the, in, in the, in the project. So we had that research um, ethic committee who are to look at the research that we are going to do in a more ethical manner and drawing insight from the publication that you made, Dr. Kati and um, Jude, ensuring that whatever thing that we do, we do it in an ethical manner. So it was a learning for me especially, and, and that has in no small measure enhanced my understanding of how to do research more ethically. Talatu, you mentioned that the project had a research ethics committee. This is quite novel, as many international development research projects don't have ethics committees. Kathy, can you tell us more about the role of the ethics committee and why the ESID project team decided to set one up? As part of this sort of process, again, of how do you shift power in research, we had to really think about how do we also shift power in terms of our ethics processes and how we think about ethics and do ethics. So one of the things then that we decided in the same way that we developed these hybrid research teams, we also created a hybrid ethics panel and sort of like an ethics review board. And it brought together then people from uh, the three different countries that were involved, Zimbabwe, Myanmar, and Nigeria, both academics and practitioners. And it also included somebody from the Open University and these people were selected by the research teams. But again, we felt that was really important because we didn't want our research ethics to be controlled uh, by any sort of university process that can sometimes maybe be a little bit detached 
uh, from the research and also maybe sometimes focuses too much on the procedural aspects of things. We wanted a research ethics team that was really rooted in the countries that we were working in and the program that we were we were working on. So the the purpose of this team then was to to come in at a couple of different points in the research process. And just bearing in mind, we had previously developed a whole res- a whole ethics framework uh, to guide the research. So they used that framework to inform their their review. So the first point in the process was to bring them in to where each of the research teams presented their research design to the panel. And that research design, as I mentioned, was developed through the co-creation and ev- using the Evidence for Development Professionals course. And each of the research teams had to present their research to this ethics panel. The ethics panel also then was available to re- do a small review on the, on the literature reviews that were created or written and then they were also needed to be available sort of for any ad hoc issues that came up through the research process and they could advise on any ethical challenges that might have arisen but just to mention then that because the research had to be cut short the whole process was never able to be completed. Kathy is referring here to the fact that the Evidence for Collaboration and Inclusive Development Project, ESID for short, ended prematurely It was cut short by a year as the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office cut project funding due to its own financial constraints. This affected many international development projects, not just the ESID project. Talatu, who else worked with you on the project? We also had research critical friends, selected um, academics from the three different countries. They are not familiar with the project, but these are people that are grounded in research works, people that have high profile in research from the academics. So um, they gave a very good feedback on what should be contained in all our research outputs. And I found that to be very, very um, productive and uh, it helped in the research process in general, especially for us in Nigeria. And how did you find the process of, of presenting your research, Talatu, to this panel? Did, did things change as a result of that process in terms of the approach you took? Okay, you see, the good thing about this uh, whole process was um, content-specific, you know. Yeah, there were a lot of um, back and forth because in the first instance, okay, we have a research partner that we work. I'm, I'm only the research representative for Nigeria Country Program, so we have the lead researcher. So mine is just to ensure that... Um, the research institute does what it's supposed to do at what time to do. But one interesting thing came out. In the first instance, when we did present our country research uh, topic, the research board thought it was too ambitious. They wanted us to, uh, to concentrate on one particular set of people as against us using the three groups of marginalized people. But the argument was that we understand our context and we know what is doable and we know what approach to use. So There was that liberty for you to argue and to bring forth what you think you can do and to to ensure that you know your context better as against someone defining it for you. And you see, that is where I really see the importance of this shifting power, you know, as against what used to be the normal norm that uh, somebody would just sit down maybe in London, so to speak, and start to tell you, I want you to do research on social topic without you not understanding the context. So there there was a lot of debate on the scope and the target group. And that was sort of the beauty, hey, of the 
co-designing the research is that the research question wasn't decided and the research methodology wasn't then decided by London, if you want. Um, it was very much decided by people like who were working in the context in the area um, and to be in, you know, relevant to, to the needs of the, the communities. So this is a question for you, Talatu. What would you say were the greatest challenges in adopting this approach and how did you overcome them? I would rather say it was an opportunity for us because the fact that we had to decentralize uh, this research was uh, a plus. And having a research-specific budget for each country to determine what to do, how to do and when to do it was um, an opportunity for us to explore the different ways in which to navigate and ensure that uh, we do our research in an ethical manner. And again, for the fact that we have the lens of both the academic and the development uh, practitioners on board, it was also an opportunity for us to marry the two and for us to have much credibility to our research work. I think working with a research institution gives more credibility to our work. Oh, I like that that very positive positive take on things there. Kathy, how about yourself? What would you say were the were the greatest challenges? And I think I tend to agree the challenges turned into opportunities and I think something very innovative and very exciting has come out and we're really much looking at this as a model going forward. But some of the challenges to get there Co-creating and trying to develop partnerships takes, can take a long time, especially when you're working uh, internationally and across different country contexts. Everybody has very much also competing agendas, not agendas, but competing timetables and very busy schedules as well. So trying to co-create takes time. But the challenge is that often the time frame that we have in a funding bid or in, in a research development process is very small. So it doesn't really lend itself to, to co-creating. But I think we found that everybody is really committed to this and really, you know, it was something that that engaged and captured, I think, the imagination of a lot of people and how we were able to do this together. And there's quite a lot of energy that came through the co-creating, the hearing from each other and learning from each other. So in that way, actually, it did work. One of the things that we tried to encourage in this research process was also whose works, whose research are you citing? And we really wanted to encourage work that was being done within the countries uh, that we were working in so that we're not just citing research that's done in the global north, but really trying to cite literature and researchers that, that are working in the country contexts. Um, and sometimes that, that is a bit more challenging because it requires a slightly different change in our thinking and, and approaches. Thanks so much, Kathy and Talatu. Sounds like a fascinating project, both in terms of methods and also in terms of the evidence produced. If you want to find out more about the Evidence Collaboration for Inclusive Development Project, you can go to their website, evidenceforinclusion.org, where you can find a range of resources and documents. You can find out more about the Evidence for Development Professional course on the Christian Aid website and also the Research Ethics Guide that was referred to today. We'll add links to all of these in the podcast notes. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Evidence for Development podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 
If you'd like to find out more about any of the research we've discussed, please check the episode notes for more information and links. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.